Ruth chapter 4 is about redemption. God has his timing, even in sermon plans. And he is so good to us. On a week like this, I know for me, um, as I was in the hospital room with Arden Kelly, Friday, I was thinking about this and the place of loneliness and emptiness that they must be in and pleading with the Lord that they would experience at least a taste of God's redemption. Hear God's word, all of chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. Now Boaz had gone up to the gates and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And so Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And the man said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field, the name of the dead, and his, uh, the day you, uh, you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses to this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi and all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his nativist place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez. Whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name and saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. And Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. And Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This sends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God stand forever. Hey, I know we've prayed twice. Let's pray again. Gracious Heavenly Father, I need your spirit for energy and strength, but most of all for clarity of communication, for the words to say, but Lord, even if my words come out too fast and too bumbling and unclear, may your spirit make them clear. 
And so, Spirit of the living God, do your redemptive work, not just around us, but in this place today, as the great good news of the gospel goes forth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been looking for the last four weeks um, at the story of Ruth, or the book of Ruth. It is indeed a story. It has five uh, acts to it. Uh, we see the fourth and the fifth this morning. And it is, a, it is, while it's a story written by um, a, some sort of author at some point in Israelite history, this story is God's word. In other words, God inspired a man to write this story down, to take what is a historical account and put it onto pen and paper so that the people of God may know this story and hear of God's redemption in the life of Naomi and Ruth. You see, we have a God who tells stories And he is not simply just telling this story, the one in Ruth. This is a small story in the the midst of a greater story that God is telling. And this morning, all all this whole series I've been telling you, don't read ahead. There's a surprise coming. And we read the surprise. I let the cat out of the bag at the beginning because I want you to hear the redemption that is here. It is an earthly redemption. It is the out of all the suffering of verses 1 through 5 for Naomi where life cannot get any worse for her, where death would be better than the destitution that she is facing. And yet at the end of the story, out of that, God brings for Israel a king named David. Now you have to understand the history of when this book is being written. It is written post-exilic. It is after the time in which the Israelites have returned from exile. And the great question in exile in, in, for the Israelites is this, has God forsaken us? It sounds familiar, right? It kind of like sounds like Naomi in chapter 1, who believes that God is against her, that God has forsaken her, that he has left her and has nothing but punishment for her. And yet in the midst of this time in the history of Israel, this author, by God's prompting, writes this story pointing back to this time of Israelite history and saying, if God could use something this bad and out of it would come King David... What else could this God do? This God is telling a larger story for the people of Israel. Indeed, he's telling a larger story for this world. You see, ultimately what we see here at the end is this genealogy. For from this marriage by Ruth and Boaz, the full redemption is they have a son. And that son has a son. And that man has a, man, a son named David who becomes the greatest king over Israel. But beyond that for us, and this is where we connect with the line of the greater story in all of history and in the larger story of the Bible, which is this. That the great, 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 great grandson, with many more greats, after David, is one who is known as Jesus. Who, it is told to us in the Old Testament that they're out of David's line. One of his sons will be the Messiah, the great king over all the world. This is the great surprise. That out of this lowly place, God would draw these people who are outcasts and suffering into his line and into his story of redemption in this world. And so... We're going to raise up the story of Ruth. We've heard the end of it, and we're going to connect it and look at it all as a whole. You know, when you, you can suddenly see things more clearly when you come to the end of a movie, right? When you come to the end of Sixth Sense and the surprise is, is it's flipped on you, you suddenly see the whole rest of the movie differently. And so I want to look at the story, the whole story of Ruth, chapters 1 through 4 this morning, and glean for us three things that this story is about, what it's trying to teach us with its happy ending and with its suffering and all of its components. So three things this morning from the story of Ruth that tells us about the greater story of redemption. The first is this. The story of Ruth is calling us 
to participate ourselves. It's calling us to participate in redemption. One of the mistakes that commentators often make in regards to looking at the story of Ruth uh, in this book is to say that that Boaz is the one who is the, the redeemer. It is only Boaz who prefigures Jesus Christ, that he is a a literary foreshadowing of the the Savior who's to come, and that Boaz comes and rescues Ruth and Naomi, and it it puts Boaz at kind of the center of the story. But the reality of the book of Ruth is it's named Ruth for a reason. Even though she's not even the main character, Naomi is. But what we have in the book of Ruth, the reality of the story of Ruth, is that both Ruth and Boaz together in tandem, in a beautiful alliance, are the one together who prefigure the role of Christ in the story. They are the means of bringing God's redemption. They are the flesh and blood redemption in Naomi's life. What we see here, and we, this is somewhat of a review of what we've looked at in the last couple weeks, it is through Naomi and through Boaz that God brings his redemption into Naomi's life. It is through a weak woman and a powerful man. And it is through Hesed, It's through the hesed of God's people pouring out towards others that God's redemption is brought to bear into this life. Let's look very briefly at Boaz. In verses 1 through 10, what we see here is that Boaz is going through, essentially, it's a court scene. And he goes to this other man who is the closer kinsman redeemer. Another, he's closer kin. Boaz is like a second or third or fourth cousin, so to speak. This man that he's going at, and by the way, in the text, it calls this other kinsman redeemer. It doesn't give him a name. It's simply, it's a, it's a derisive word that goes kind of like Mr. So-and-so or Mr. Such-and-such. He's not included in redemptive history. His name is blotted out because he chooses not to participate. And this man is given the opportunity to come in, to marry, to marry Ruth, to uh, have children with her that will carry a Limelech's line in his name, and also to buy back Naomi's property out of debt and to provide for Naomi for her in this way for the rest of her life. And what we see here, what Boaz is doing in this text is he is becoming the legal and technical kinsman redeemer. It was this Hebrew word, kinsman redeemer, is called goel. It's a technical term. In, in order to fulfill the role of a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, you had to have three, three, fulfill three of the following, all three of these. First, you had to, a kinsman redeemer had to be related by blood. You had to be related by blood. You had to have it be a blood relative. In other words, you had to have the right position within the family. Second, the kinsman redeemer must be able to pay the price. If you're going to buy back family lands, you have to be able to, to have the money to do that. Boaz is a man who has the money and the ability, the capacity to pay the price. But then third and most importantly, you have to be willing The difference between Boaz and Mr. Such-and-such or Mr. So-and-so is that Boaz is willing. According to law, it is possible for kinsmen to get out of this. They can forsake this role. But Mr. Mr. No-Name just recognizes that if he's going to marry Ruth, that this is a price that is too great for him to pay. That too much of his inheritance is going to get split up. That this land that he's going to buy isn't going to come into his family. It's going to be owned by all the progeny of Ruth and and Naomi. And so it's not going to be attributed to him. It won't make his name great. In sharp contrast, though, Boaz is a man who says, as we saw last week, who is selfless in his redemption. He's a man who says, as Ruth, when she proposes to him, says, Marry me, and none of my children will bear your name. Marry me. And you get, you get a woman who comes from a bad name. 
a bad family from Moab. Marry me, and you get an old woman to support. Marry me, and you have to buy back the family land at your own expense. Marry me. And he does it. And he does it because he loves the Lord, and he loves Naomi, and he carries out the spirit of the law, and actually carries out a risk-it-all, selfless sacrifice. This is love that Boaz displays. And this is just a quick call and application for us who are here, particularly to you men. There are, many people will look at in regards to the great longings between men and women, is men desire significance, and, and this is, you know, these are patterns. Women tend to desire security. Men, in their longing for significance, the way we have often done that is actually we either shirk that responsibility we shirk, we take power, and we, we set it aside and say, I don't want anything to do with this. I'm going to protect what little of a life I have. But significance in God's story, in order to come out and not be a man who is just a, known as Mr. So-and-so in this world, but to be a man who is a redeemer in this world involves this. It involves risk. And it means that you walk into places where you might lose out it means that you, here's Boaz, he has power and position and place, and he says, I will use these for those who are weaker. When we men allow God, when we hear God calling us out of our great idols, which is autonomy and isolation and selfishness, and instead we move into a holy risk and move into places of great discomfort, it is then that you begin to become redeemers like Boaz is. It's when you say, I will take that. I will bear that burden. I will go without the sleep. I will go without the things that I long for. I will sacrifice my weekends. I will give up of my life and my comforts so that I may die for those around me. This is what God's men do. And it's the means by which God brings redemption to this world. When young men say, I'm leaving the comforts of this place because I'm going to go to some place that's dangerous and share the gospel. It's when old men don't determine that retirement is for me. It's when young men and men in their middle ages say, I will continue to sacrifice for my daughters and my sons, even when I'm exhausted, even when I don't want to pursue my wife any longer, when it has been thrown in my face, I will do it, and I will die to myself day in and day out. That is the type of man that God calls and the man God uses for redemption. So God uses Boaz. He's a redeemer. But the other part is Ruth is the redeemer as well. And they're actually a tandem in verses 14 and 15 of this text, it says this. The women are actually, they're blessing Naomi, and they say this about Ruth. They say that there is this son that you're having. May the blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, talking about Obed. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For, and here's why, for your daughter-in-law loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. In other words, what are they saying over Ruth and what are they saying about her? That the means of bringing redemption into Naomi's life came through who? Ruth. That she is better than seven sons. Ruth is the means of redemption in Naomi's life. Ruth understands, and we looked at this and saw this in chapter one. Ruth understands this, that if in order to love someone, to order to love someone enough to bring them into a redemptive place like this, then here's what it's gonna mean for your life your life is going to get worse. If you look back at Ruth chapter 1, when, when Naomi tells Ruth to go back to her family to leave her, she paints an incredibly dark picture and says, if you stay with me, your life is over. And Ruth says, then I am staying with you, and my life is over. 
Too often the view of way in which we view marriage and family in this, in view life in this world as American Christians is this, is that I become a Christian so that my life can become better. That God, I want to be, I want to go to church. I want to be a Christian so my life can be more comfortable, but that's not actually the way of the gospel. The way of the gospel and the way of being a people who actually engage in God's redemptive purposes in this world is I'm a Christian because God has died for me and therefore I will die for those around me. Therefore, if it means my life gets worse, then my life gets worse. Ruth, in order to bring redemption, I want you to see this very specifically in the way she goes about this. Yes, she sacrifices. But my call to you women in particular here is to see this, that what she, how the way in which she loves is not cautiously it is courageously it is not a cautious love if ruth had embraced a philosophy of caution think about the negative repercussions it would have brought into her life what if she had stayed in the safe zones and the safe places the places of security it would have mean it would have meant no redemption for naomi it would have meant naomi would have been simply another statistic and the devastation of widows in the ancient world and in the world that still exists today Naomi would simply be a statistic. We, we'd have, Naomi would have, instead of a tale of redemption, she'd have a tale of being taken advantage of and pushed aside and left for dead. That the painful injustices would communicate to Naomi that, yes, God doesn't care about you, but because Ruth decided to get, not be cautious but to be courageous in her love, God brings a redemptive story into Naomi's life. The names of Elimelech and Malon and Kilion, even though they don't deserve it, they would be erased from history and indeed, the line that would, that would produce David and then the Messiah would go to another family. But Ruth didn't embrace the philosophy of caution, did she? She took risks and took great, with great boldness. Let me say this. Sometimes God, following God means throwing caution to the wind. It means saying no to the guy who is safe to wait for somebody better. It means saying, I will love again a husband who doesn't deserve it. It means when that child has screamed at me for the thousandth time, I will go back in. And it is risky. I will open my heart up to these things. I will not simply try to keep myself secure and harden myself to the world around me. Instead, I will have a bold love. Sometimes caution is a symptom of faithlessness. We could have a dull and disappointing story here in Ruth, but instead we have a story that captures the imagination. It is romantic and beautiful, not for in a rom-com sort of way, but because of its great sacrifice and the courage it took to love in the way that these characters love. In every scene of this story, Ruth is making sacrifices down to the very last story. She takes her baby, and where does she put it? Into the laps of Naomi and says, Naomi, this is your son. Your child. So while Boaz must reject the significance as the world defines it and find kingdom significance, my call to you women would be to reject worldly security and instead find kingdom security. Ruth rejects the safe marriage, the safe life, the safe gods, the safe family, the safe nation, and she enters into and moves into the bad neighborhood and works the laborious jobs and puts herself in risky positions all so she might bring about a greater redemption for Naomi. What we have in Ruth and Boaz is together a blessed alliance for redemption. That's who they are. Most of the world gets together in alliances for war. They got together in in, an alliance for redemption. God calls his image bearers to join him in saving the world. 
This is one of the calls and one of the points of the story of Ruth. We have two redeemers, a great and mighty bridegroom who, who marries Ruth, and his wealth becomes hers. He goes into debt, and their debts are wiped out. And Ruth is the suffering servant, the one who goes outside the city gate, who becomes the alien, who becomes marginalized, so Naomi's marginality and Naomi's poverty might be restored. Let me say this. In other words, what you're seeing here is a marriage, not just man and woman, not just manhood and womanhood in disconnection from one another, but actually what we see in the story of Ruth is a story of a marriage that brings redemption to the world. What is the picture that God has given to us in marriage in Ephesians chapter 5? What is its purpose? And so that the world might know the love that Christ has for his bride, the church. In other words, your marriage is brothers and sisters. Those of you that are single, that are thinking about getting married and long to be married, the great longing for that should not be about making you happy. It should be about this. How might I join with someone else in order to bring redemption into this world? How might God use us in which maybe we're weaker apart from each other, but together in a blessed alliance, we might paint a picture and in fact live out of this marriage in such a way whether it be in our home or in our neighborhood, God, their redemptive stories might be written. It changes the way you view relationships. The story of Ruth and Boaz. They are selfless and they come together in order to bring redemption. So that's the first lesson we see from this story. Second is this. The story of Ruth is telling us about the nature of redemption. There's so many things here I could list, but I'm just going to give you two about the nature of Redemption. Two points under this, two subheadings. The nature of redemption is this, that in God's redemptive story, he takes outsiders and makes them insiders. God takes outsiders and makes them insiders. In verses 11 through 12, the women of the city pronounce a blessing over Ruth. And they, their, their blessing is that she might have children. Remember, that's, a, that's one of the risks here, right? She's been barren for 10 years. The risk is we, we need God's intervention. In fact, when the place where she says that Ruth became pregnant, it's only, only the second time in the whole book that God's name is even mentioned. It says that God acts so that she might be pregnant. They bless her and they say, may out from your line, from the fruit of this marriage, may a great family line come. And we see that's absolutely the case, right? That blessing comes to bear. And out of this line, out of this marriage, comes the great king David. But there is, and then ultimately the Messiah, but there is, there is more to this through line in this story that highlights this point that the Lord is, is the one who brings the outsiders as insiders. And it's this, in the midst of their blessing, they say something strange about Ruth. They say, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. All right, now we've gotten some seedy stories here in the book of Ruth about the, the history of the Moabites, the Moabite people for whom Ruth belongs this is another one. It's the story of Tamar. You see, Judah, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, one of the, which become one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and in which Bethlehem is one of the cities in the tribe of Judah. Well, Judah's son marries Tamar, but that son dies, and they have no children. So, as we've seen in this series, in the, in the case of Leverite marriage, the next son is then given to Tamar in marriage in order so they may have children. But this son dies as well. Again, no children. And Judah promised to Tamar that she could then marry his youngest son when he was old enough to marry. But Judah pulls back on the deal. 
He doesn't carry it out. He doesn't keep his word. And so one weekend while Judah is on a business trip, Tamar takes things into her own hands. And she dresses up outside of a city as a prostitute. And Judah comes wandering along. And Tamar propositions Judah to spend an evening with her. And he does. Now, she, he has nothing by which to pay her. And so she says, I will take your staff and your ring and your coat as kind of a down payment. It's like keeping your credit card on file back then. So that, when you, so that I'll know you come back and you'll pay me. And so what's found out later on, though, is, is Tamar is not a prostitute. She leaves the city gate. When he goes to, to pay her, she's no longer there, and he's asking around for her, and it's, no one can find this, this mystery woman. And it's found later on that Tamar is pregnant. She's still part of Judah's family. She still lives within their clan. And as, as is the case, is to have an adulterous woman in their clan, they go crazy. And they're, you know, what they're going to do is Judah says she must be stoned to death before she is an adulteress. She slept out not with somebody who is her husband. And so they're bringing her out to stone her as a family. And she pulls out the ring. And she says, oh, yeah, this is who I slept with. Judah, keep your end of the deal. And actually, the line of Judah comes out of this encounter between Judah and Tamar. And what the women of Bethlehem are saying is this. May you be, they, they're looking at the story of Ruth and saying, this seems eerily familiar. And it ought to be. And here's what it's all pointing to. You see, if you were actually to turn to Matthew, these comparisons, the two, these two women, Tamar and Ruth, they're both widows. They're both eligible for a Goel redemption. They both had to take action on their own. They both um, approach an older man for marriage. They both end up the matriarch of a great dynasty. Tamar over the tribe of Judah and Ruth over the line of David. But this is not the last time that they're mentioned. They're actually mentioned together in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus. Where there we see four women named in the genealogy of Jesus. Their names are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. You know what all four of these women have in common? One, they are all Gentiles. They are outsiders. And then two, they have either been prostitutes or have been the victims of the power of men sexually manipulating, abusing them. Every single one of them. Tamar does this thing to Judah and tricks him and pretends to be a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth appears to be a prostitute on the threshing floor. And Bathsheba is abused by David in an adulterous affair. And what we see, the point is this. This is the women in God's family line. No Sarah, no Rebecca, no Leah. It is these four women. What is God telling us? That there is no one who is too, too far outside of the line for God to bring in. And not only has he brought him in, but he's brought him right into the story of the king and his kingdom. God loves to take outsiders. And not only does he bring him into the very family of the king, of God's son himself, and the great king David, but besides that, God also will most often use the lowly and the outcast to bring his redemptive work to bear in this world. That's what he's doing. God's redemptive stories. The nature of his redemption is to take outsiders and make them the ultimate insiders. What a trump card. Who's your boy? Well, my boy fights in the military. He's a, he's a captain. He's really highly decorated. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. Well, who's your boy? Oh, he's an astronaut. He flew to the moon. Oh, yeah, my boy is David. And then beyond that, my great-great-grandson is Jesus. That's an insider mom right there. This is what God is doing Bringing outsiders and making them insiders. Second, I want you to see this in God's redemptive story. 
God is taking the empty and he's filling them up. He's taking the empty and he's filling them up. This story is not ultimately about the redemption of Ruth. It is ultimately about the redemption of Naomi and Elimelech's family line. Notice in every chapter, in every single chapter of this, of this story, it, the attention that is given to Naomi. In chapter 1, it is about Naomi's great fall, about how she is destitute. And then we see Ruth's statement in the end. But then at the end of Ruth, of Ruth chapter 1, who do we go back to? Naomi. And her bitterness. Chapter 2, we have the barley episode. But by the end of chapter 2, who is the one who is speaking and acting? Naomi. It is seen as Naomi is the one who is provided for. And chapter 3, we have Naomi not only making the plans, but then Ruth and Boaz, for Ruth and Boaz. But then again, at the very end of chapter 3, who is the last one speaking? It's Naomi. And in chapter 4, in the courtroom scene, when it all ends, every, it ends with Naomi holding a baby. In every single chapter, it always comes back to her. Now, this is a literary observation, but it has theological implications, which is this. That God is preoccupied with providing for Naomi. That that's what the story is about. That time and time and time again, what this story is coming back to is how God is providing for Naomi, even at this low place that she finds herself in chapter one. Yahweh is never absent. Naomi is never, is never leaves God's mind. He is fixated on her welfare, not just in chapters two, three, and four, but in chapter one as well when things are so bad. Faith can scarcely grasp the immensity of God's care. Did you know this? That God is preoccupied with your care. That there is nothing, not a hair falls on your head without God knowing it. That God has ordained all things for your good and for your redemption. God takes Naomi from emptiness to fullness. And by the way, the author of Ruth, one of the reasons why this is such a beautiful story, the author of Ruth does, I mean, he just goes out of his way to extravagant lengths to display in the structure and nuances of the story in chapter 4, how chapter 4 is intentionally showing itself to be the reversal of Naomi's story in chapter 1. Let's just walk through it just a bit. In chapter 1, Naomi feels cursed by God. In chapter 4, women are doing what over Naomi? They're blessing her in the name of God. In chapter 1, Naomi is blaming God for his punishment of of her. In chapter 4, she is worshiping God. In chapter 1, Naomi is in the midst of great grief and mourning. In chapter 4, what is she doing? She is celebrating. In chapter 1, Naomi changes her name from Naomi to what? Mara, bitterness. In chapter 4, Naomi doesn't name herself. She names a what? A baby, Obed. In chapter 1, she is full of bitterness. In chapter 4, she is full of joyfulness. That God can bring his people. That he, in redemption means he reverses the story. That's what it means. That he changes the story. He flips it upside down. Can you just imagine Naomi's smile when that little boy is put in her lap? She had said, don't call me, Naomi, call me bitter. But now in chapter 4, she can say, don't call me bitter. Call me ecstatic. Call me worshiper. She's like Sarah who gives birth to Isaiah and she laughs. In chapter 1, we see death. In chapter 4, we see life, right? Chapter 1, there's three funerals. In chapter 4, there's a wedding and a baby. In chapter 1, there's emptiness. There is no food. There is no male companions. There is no provision. In chapter chapter 4, there is fullness. 
Naomi has everything that she wants. In, Rome, in, in Ruth chapter one, verse 21, Naomi said this, I went away full, but I came back empty. But in chapter four, we see this, that in chapter one, she says that, and Ruth is right next to her. In chapter four, what do we see? Not only is Ruth right next to her, but everybody recognized that Ruth is better than what? Seven sons. This is like an ancient Near Eastern way of saying, you have the perfect family, Naomi. Seven sons is the perfect family. From emptiness to fullness, and the women of Bethlehem are saying, you have everything. Do you see this? This is what God is doing in stories of redemption. That our God is a redeeming God, and the stories that he's telling are stories that go from death to life, from cursing to blessing, from bitterness to happiness, from emptiness to fullness, from despair to hope. That's the story that God is writing, and that's the story he's offering to you. To you. You see how God cares so intensely for his people. He writes whole stories just to show off what he can do. We're going to go to the last point, and it's, but to get there, we've we got to ask some actual questions. We have to move out of the realm of, of magic and fairy tales. Because Ruth has a baby, and Naomi gets to be a grandmother, right? This is a happily ever after scene, isn't it? What a happy ending. But we, we can't and we shouldn't oversimplify this. Because think about this, there is still pain and sorrow even after they have this baby. Think about what they've endured in the past 10 years. Famine, the loss of a husband, the loss of sons. Ruth, we don't know exactly whether she had miscarriage after miscarriage. We know at the very least that she lost her family in Moab. She lost her husband. It is obvious to anyone who has experienced any significant issues of loss that the sorrows of this world and the wounds that they inflict on our souls cannot be compensated with a grandson. I've, my, I've given, my wife and I have given four grandchildren to our parents. Listen, they love them so much, but they have not kept them from feeling sorrow in this world. They are not the means, ultimate means of redemption to suggest that everything balances out in the end simply because Naomi has, has a grandson and he has good, eventually, lineage of, and family lines is to look at this and actually not see the story for the fullness of what it is. And not only that, let me ask you this. What about all of you who don't actually get to experience this kind of happy ending story where your husband is not raised back to life, where you don't find Prince Charming, when you don't ever actually get the child or the grandchild that you long to have. These are the, the, for the vast majority of the time, these are the stories that are actually written. They're half-told redemptive stories that are incomplete. That's the stories we get in this world normally. So what do we do with us? The Bible doesn't promise us such a story, that, but he does say this, that he is, he is, he is not just going to kind of provide a balance sheet at the end of our life where everything is kind of evened out. We need something more. And that leads us to the third point this morning. The story of Ruth is pointing to us to the full means of redemption. And by this, we mean the eternal redemption. The narrator of Ruth has one last artistic touch for us. If you remember, in the verse, verses 1 through 5 in the Hebrew has 71 words. If you look at verses 18 through 22, just to highlight this, just a, shine, a shining light on 18 to 22 when he gives that, that genealogy. He doesn't include everybody in the genealogy. There's, of course, more people that are involved in that genealogy. But the genealogy is exactly 71 words. It's called a chiasm. It's where we begin, things are completely flipped at the end. 
The book ends not with a look back at an unbearable past, but what we have here is a new beginning, a new five verses of sorts. We said five verses and brings person to the end of their life in the first five verses of Ruth. And here in five verses, in the midst of a genealogy, a dry, crusty genealogy, God shows that there is a future for us. And here's what we see in Ruth chapter 4, verse 22. It's that it's not actually the end of the story. That it ends with David at the end of the genealogy. And I want to invite you to fast forward with me to Matthew 1. We've already pointed this out. And you know where we're going. But in the genealogy, we see that it points forward to this. That in in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Salmon is the father of Boaz. Circle here, real quick. Whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And then further on down in Matthew 1, it says this, and David is the father of Solomon, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. In other words, if you're going to understand the story of Ruth and move it beyond simply our small fairy tale stories in this world that we want... We need a greater redemption, and that greater redemption is only going to come through the son who is pointed to here, and that is Jesus. The real redeemer of this account, the one who is pointed forward to in the genealogy, who will bring the real new beginning and eternal life, is the child born in Bethlehem. Here's the story of the Bible in connection to the story of Ruth. It's this, that we had a family member named Adam, and he dragged the family, the whole family, into debt. And he had to sell off the world, so this whole world is broken. And he dragged us out of it. Because of his sin, we left the garden, the place of God's dwelling, and we left the presence of God. Ever since then, we have been living a famine, sorrowful, terrible life where death and sorrow and barrenness seems to take hold in every single place. That's the world in which we live, and we can't get back because we look around for a kinsman redeemer, someone who is related to us, and go, can you save us? Can you, can you, do you have the ability to pay the price to bring us back to God? Can you bring us back into the family? That is the question of all the Old Testament. Is there someone, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, all of these prophets, are you the one who can bring us back into the family line? Can you redeem our family? And yet no one is found who is able or willing. And so what must happen? See, the New Testament is this, is about a kinsman redeemer. We need God to enter the family. If you may remember this at the very beginning when I was talking about Boaz, is the technical term of kinsman redeemer. It required three things, right? He had to be a part of the family. You had to have the ability to redeem. In other words, the money or the capacity. And you had to be willing Here's what I want you to see in Jesus Christ. We have one in the incarnation where God himself took on human flesh. He joined our family. He became kin. He became kin with us. And not only that, but then he lives the perfect life for us. And in that, Jesus is showing us that, yes, I can pay the price. Your sin is a debt that must be paid. No other sinner can pay that debt. But Jesus says, I am perfect. Jesus lives a perfectly righteous life. Therefore, he can pay the debt for us. And is Jesus willing? That's the question. Is he willing to to die for us? Is he willing to pay the cost for us? To redeem our broken family and bring us into a new line of redemption? The answer, the cross says with a resounding what? Yes. Yes. That he is our, our kin, that he has the ability to pay for us, and he has the willingness. And I, what I want you to see here is the last word of this book is the name of David. 
pointing to Jesus. And this points to your future and my future and our life, which is this, that the last word and your story is the name of Jesus. That some of you may be in a place where you are in absolute emptiness right now. That you're in a place of utter brokenness like Naomi was. Perhaps you're an outsider. Perhaps you're utterly empty as Naomi is. Perhaps life has not gone the way you hoped it would go. But the last word, the last word, the story is not over for you. And what the great thing is this, is when we come to the end of the story, it is not the end. The last word of the story is the name of Jesus. Because as it says in Revelation, when the king comes back, what happens? All things are made new. The name of Jesus equals all things are made new. It means your story will finally have the happy ending, that all that brokenness and all of that suffering, that you'll actually be lifted up and you'll be put in a place where, as it also says in Revelation chapter 21, that when the king comes back, the king Jesus, and he makes all things new, what does it say about that place? It'll be there that there will be no more tears and no more weeping and no more death. That is the redemption that we need. That is the redemption that we look forward to. That is the redemption that parents who lose eight-day-old babies cry out for. That they may have other children, and there may be some silver lining to the story, but the ultimate lining, the ultimate happy ending, is that we have a king who comes and brings us home, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a really good storyteller. And so, gracious God, I I pray that um, the story of redemption um, that you are writing in this world, that, that it wouldn't remain distant from us. It wouldn't it wouldn't hit our hearts like a long ago and in a faraway place. But Lord, it would hit our hearts as right now and in me. God tells this story. I pray for those in this room who are looking at their life and it's, they say it's empty. It's empty. My marriage might as well be dead. My job is pointless. Oh gracious God, redeem our smaller stories, but ultimately Lord, That'll only happen as you call us into the greater story. And then, gracious Heavenly Father, my prayer for King's Chapel this year is that we'd be a people who so love the redemptive story of Ruth and the story of the Bible that we would tell other people, Lord, get us, get us out of bed. Lord, I pray that we would not just be cautious people who stay in safe places, but you would call us to be a people who share the story in dangerous places and enact it in in powerful and courageous ways. I pray that your spirit would convict people as to exactly what that might look like in their lives this year. That you would call men to use their power and position, not to make a name for themselves, but to become small, so that they may make other people great. Lord, if that's gonna happen, you're gonna have to compel us. So again, Lord, bring that story to bear upon our hearts. May the penny drop. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.